millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Timeline Tapes. I'm Nate Fisher, and this is the World History Podcast for me and the team from the YouTube channel Timeline. Timeline is the home of world history on YouTube, and we wanted to turn some of our documentaries into podcasts because we know that sometimes people don't always have the time to sit down and watch a full series or show. So now you can listen to these documentaries wherever you are. They were made for TV, but with some editing and guidance along the way from me, we know you'll enjoy them. This episode is the fourth in a series all about Roman leaders, hosted by broadcaster and comedy legend Tony Robinson. So far on the podcast, we've looked at Julius Caesar and Caligula, and now it's time to look at the tyrannical and extravagant reign of Emperor Nero. He's become one of the great symbols of the corruption of power, the maniac fiddling while his city burns. The tyrant was Nero, the city Rome. Fiddling while Rome burns is just one of the stories that's made Nero's reputation as one of the most evil men in history. The psychopath who killed his wife and mother, who threw Christians to the lions, who was condemned to an early death. All these things are true, but the fact that he never even played the violin should alert us to the fact that there's more to him than the monster that historians have consigned to the dustbin of the past. Because there was another Nero, a man who loved peace, not war. The world's first rock star, cheered by his adoring fans. An enlightened lover of music, theatre and the arts. And it's this Nero that I want to try and rescue from the ashes of his terrible reputation. Nero's life has all the elements of a soap opera. Political intrigue, bitter jealousy, passionate love affairs and murder. This hostile picture was built up by propagandists after his death. As the centuries passed, historians exaggerated the myths of Nero. My job is to sort the fact from the fiction, to balance the later propaganda against other sources and plain common sense. What we know for certain is Nero came to power when he was just 16. At an age when most kids are deciding which subjects to do for A-level, he was made ruler of half the world. That's when his history as emperor began. But in order to understand Nero, we have to go back further, because it's what happened to him as a little boy that made him the emperor he became. 
Nero was the name he adopted later, but he was born Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus on the 15th of December 37, here at Antium, on the coast near Rome. Nero's family had links to the emperors going back to Julius Caesar. Family connections were everything to the Romans. In terms of social standing, Nero had a great family. Although in terms of a healthy psychological background, they were a disaster. First, there was his father, a tough and brutal alcoholic called Gnaeus. This is a man who killed an ex-slave during a drinking bout, gouged out a fellow senator's eye when he criticised him in the forum, and deliberately killed a young boy in a traffic accident in a fit of road rage. But the real aristocratic blood came from his mother's side. Nero's story is about the women who influenced him, and central to that story is his mother Agrippina, the ultimate pushy woman. She created him, she made him, and in the end, she all but destroyed him. Agrippina's father, the war hero Germanicus, had been heir to the imperial throne, but had died tragically young. She was ferociously ambitious and well aware that the only way to power for a woman was through a husband, or better still, a son. She saw Nero as her passport to power. This is Dr. Ray Lawrence, professor of ancient history at Macquarie University and the award-winning author behind Growing Up and Growing Old in Ancient Rome. He'll be appearing a few more times in this episode. Agrippina, like sort of a lot of mothers in particular, has an ambition for herself. She has, she has a son who is going to become powerful or could become powerful. Nero had rich, powerful parents, but he also had an uncle who was emperor. In the year Nero was born, Agrippina's evil brother Caligula became emperor. Caligula was paranoid. He saw treason everywhere. There were secret trials, political murders, and terror throughout Rome. When Nero was just two, Caligula sent Agrippina into exile on suspicion of being involved in a plot against him. The toddler Nero was left in the care of his alcoholic father. Then, just as he was getting used to having no mother, tragedy struck again. His father died. Nero was abandoned, brought up by household slaves, a dancer and a barber. Hardly a good start for a future emperor. But in 41 AD, Nero's luck took a turn for the better. Caligula was assassinated by senators determined to stop his reign of terror. Nero's mother was brought back from exile. Caligula was replaced by Nero's stuttering great-uncle Claudius, a figure of fun who'd survived by looking harmless. Anyone who's read the book or watched the TV series of I, Claudius, will assume that Nero's problems were over, but far from it. Claudius was much more than the wise, stuttering clown we're led to believe he was. He also shared the sadistic characteristics of his predecessor and kept the levels of terror at court just as high. There were secret trials in private chambers, suspects tortured in front of him just for the fun of it. Nero grew up knowing that anyone he was close to could be murdered at any time. But the chief threat to his existence didn't come from Claudius but from his third wife, Messalina. 
the seven-year-old Nero became the pawn in a power struggle between two ruthlessly ambitious women. Messalina wanted her son to be emperor after Claudius. Agrippina wanted it to be Nero. Both women were willing to fight dirty. Around 44 AD, while the young and handsome Nero lay sleeping, an attempt was made on his life. Messalina sent two assassins into his rooms in the dead of night, and he was saved by a miraculous event. As they pulled back the sheets to finish him off, a snake slithered out of his bed they fled in terror. It's a colourful way of dramatising this dynastic squabble, but this episode only emerges a century later, and it's got suspicious parallels with Roman folktales at the time. The only bit of evidence for this is actually a snake skin is found in the bedroom, which his mother has made into a bracelet for him. So it's one of those stories that it's rather like sort of Hercules and the snakes and sort of he, Hercules kills the snakes. It's one of those stories which you make up about childhood. It's a, it's a lovely story, but it's probably not very true. Agrippina made sure that the news was leaked to Claudius and Messalina was forced to kill herself. With her rival out of the way, Agrippina put the next stage of her plan into effect and married her uncle Claudius. Part of the deal was that her son was adopted by Claudius, changing his name to Nero. It effectively made him heir to the imperial throne, but Agrippina strengthened the bond with an arranged marriage. A wife for Nero would also need political clout, and Agrippina realised she didn't have to look far for that. She arranged a marriage between the 15-year-old Nero and Claudius's 13-year-old daughter, Octavia. Not surprisingly, she had to have the law changed first to avoid any charges of incest. The next stage in Agrippina's plan was to tighten her grip on power by making strategic appointments. This is where emperors were made and broken. The Viminal Gate, a military camp on the outskirts of Rome that's still used by the Italian forces today. The legions weren't allowed inside Rome, so the emperor had his own elite force called the Praetorian Guard, who were based here. Any aspiring contender for the imperial throne who didn't have their support didn't stand a chance. Right. Usually, they were under the command of two prefects. Agrippina created just one boss, a tough, straight-speaking soldier called Burrus. He and his fellow officers knew that they owed their loyalty to her and her son. Burrus was to be one of the twin pillars of support for the teenage emperor. Her second appointment was a masterstroke. The most respected philosopher of his day, Seneca, was employed as Nero's teacher and speechwriter. With Burrus and Seneca, Agrippina groomed the teenage Nero for power. But it seems Nero found his official role quite a bore. He hated the endless formal dinners with his stuttering uncle Claudius, who slobbered over his gourmet food and got slowly but steadily drunk. But according to the historians, these dinners had a much more immediate consequence. They gave Agrippina the opportunity to murder her husband. Claudius loved mushrooms. The historians say Agrippina employed the most famous poisoner in Rome to prepare a powerful potion for his favourite dish. 
Claudius had a food taster to guard him against poisoning, but Agrippina had bought him off. This man put the poisoned mushroom onto the plate after she'd taken her portion. Claudius swallowed the bait, literally. The poison was designed to act slowly. Claudius retired drunk and with the first symptoms of stomachache, which got worse. But then news arrived that he'd thrown up shortly after supper. If he survived, then he'd know there'd been an attempt on his life and both Nero and Agrippina would be done for. Agrippina went into overdrive. The poisoner was brought in again. This time, a feather was dipped in a quick-acting potion. Agrippina gave it to another of her stooges, Claudius's doctor. He told Claudius that if he tickled the back of his throat with the feather, he'd vomit again and feel a lot better. Claudius followed the doctor's orders, gave a sigh and lay back dead. Historians writing later enjoyed telling the story of Agrippina killing Claudius, but we now know that there wasn't any poison that could work that quickly at the time. Claudius was pushing 60 and in poor health, and it's far more likely that he died from drink, overindulgence, or even food poisoning. What the stories really tell us is how people saw Agrippina, a ruthless politician who was quite capable of murdering her own husband. Whether natural causes or foul play, the next few hours followed the same course as imperial deaths have done from Maoist China to the Queen Mother. Agrippina didn't announce his death straight away. She needed to play for time. Prayers were offered up for the emperor's recovery and musicians were invited in to cheer him up even while his body was growing cold. As a precautionary measure, she called out the Praetorian Guard from their barracks to surround the palace while she worked on the official announcement with Burrus and Seneca. Finally, at midday the following day, the pronouncement was made. The emperor is dead, long live the emperor Nero. The crowds loved their glamorous 16-year-old ruler. Claudius's palace on the Palatine had been a place of fear secretly run by the emperor's clique. Now Nero announced a new regime the Senate would be restored to power. Tyranny was over. It seemed a new era had dawned. Agrippina and Nero both knew that he owed her everything. When the Praetorian officer came to him that evening to ask for the official password, Nero told him it was to be Optima Mater, the perfect mother. But if Agrippina thought that Nero was gonna be her puppet, she was very much mistaken. The perfect mother didn't want compliments. She wanted power for herself. Nero had fallen madly in love with a woman called Acte. He had his official child bride, Octavia, but this was a real woman. Acte was older than Nero, mature, sexy, but she was Greek and an ex-slave. Nero wanted to keep news of the affair from his mother, but he wanted to get rid of Octavia and marry Acte. And when you want to divorce your wife and make a slave girl the Empress of Rome, it is a bit hard to keep it a secret. Agrippina went ballistic. As far as she was concerned, Acte had to go. 
Poor old Nero was forced to go scurrying round various senators, trying to persuade them that Acte was actually an Eastern princess and therefore eligible for the throne, but nobody bought it. Nero had to give up love for duty, and it hurt. Agrippina may have won, but in the long term it damaged her. Bullying Nero forced him further and further into the arms of his advisers, the philosopher Seneca, the head of the Praetorian Guard, Burrus, and a few elder statesmen, who were quite prepared to put up with Nero's foibles, but not those of his mother. Within a year of taking over, the balance of power had shifted in favour of the 17-year-old. Nero moved Agrippina out into a separate palace. For a time, he barely spoke to the woman who had once been the perfect mother. He was his own man. And here, we begin to unpick the myth of the tyrant Nero. Because even historians like Tacitus, who destroyed Nero's reputation after his death, had to admit that the first five years of his reign were a huge success. He gave power back to the Senate, he administered the provinces fairly, and cemented his popularity by giving every citizen a cash handout. As a fun-loving teenager, he seemed to have a natural touch with the man in the street. Bread and circuses has always kept the mob happy, but now Nero came up with a brand new ploy, the lottery. He showered little wooden balls with numbers on them into the crowd, and if you got a prize-winning number, then you could turn up at the palace and claim a lavish free gift. Horses, slaves, even a holiday home. This is Miriam Griffin, Roman historian and author of Nero, the End of a Dynasty. Nero's popularity, I think, stemmed from his youth, the fact that he really tried to be such a good boy at the beginning and did all the things he was supposed to. But his relationship with the populace, I think, was particularly strong because he was very generous, spent a lot. He gave very good entertainments, and they really loved bread and circuses, uh, as we know. And also, he was rather accessible. That is, we're told on a number of occasions there are banquets or entertainments in which Nero is walking among the crowds and they actually see him uh, and I think that means quite a lot to them. The increasing tension with Agrippina came to a head again over a new affair. Nero was 22. This time the object of his affections wasn't a slave girl but a member of the aristocracy called Poppea. Nero was of course married to Octavia the princess who'd given him his passport to one half of the imperial line. Poppea started pressuring Nero to get divorced, and this became all the more urgent when she discovered that she was pregnant and could provide Nero with an heir. The only opponent to their relationship was his mother. Things disintegrate. He starts ceasing to have public or private meetings even, with his mother. He won't be alone with his mother. He doesn't trust his mother. Poppea kept up the pressure. She taunted Nero for being a mummy's boy, told him an emperor should be able to do what he wants. Subtly, she persuaded Nero to think the unthinkable. No one knows for sure when Nero decided to kill his mother, but we do know exactly how he did it. And no one but him could have thought up such an extravagant plot. He got the idea at the theatre. He went to a show with some friends. 
and part of the entertainment was a boat that collapsed and out through the holes ran a whole series of wild animals. The idea of the collapsible boat must have stuck. He had one specially built to take his mother home from a dinner party. On the night of the murder, it was waiting at the quayside, crewed by his loyal naval commander, Anicatus. Right on cue, halfway across the bay to Agrippina's home, the boat started to sink. There was general panic, but Agrippina was a natural survivor. She persuaded her maid to pretend to be her while she jumped ship. The maid thought this would save her life and shouted, I'm Agrippina, save me! But when the assassins heard her, they beat her over the head and killed her. Meanwhile, Agrippina managed to swim until she was picked up by a fishing boat, which took her safely home. It can't have taken long for the truth to dawn on the exhausted and fearful mother that her son wanted her dead. On the other side of the bay, word reached Nero that Agrippina had survived. Terrified, he panicked. He ordered Burrus to get the Praetorian Guard to go and finish her off. Burrus refused, saying that his men would never agree to kill a member of the royal family, particularly the daughter of their hero, Germanicus. In the end, it was the naval man, Anicatus, who agreed to do it. Nero's thanks are revealing. You've given me my empire, he said. Back in Rome, Burrus and Seneca invented the story that Agrippina had killed herself because her plan to murder Nero had been discovered. Although they were prepared to cover up for the emperor, they gradually realised they'd lost control of him. With this unforgivable act of murder, Nero had crossed the line into tyranny and there was no going back. Nero's reign as emperor had started with great acclaim, but by the age of 22, power had already corrupted him. He'd murdered his mother so he could divorce his wife Octavia and marry his mistress Poppaea. But Octavia was still a woman of influence in Rome, with all the clout of the royal family, so Poppaea persuaded Nero, for his own sake, that he needed to get rid of his ex-wife permanently. And there was no one left to tell him not to. Unable to deal with Nero, the philosopher Seneca had retired to the country, and his military advisor, Burrus, had died. He was replaced by a ruthless yes-man, Tigellinus. If Seneca and Burrus had managed to keep Nero on the rails, it was Tigellinus and Poppaea who derailed him again. They invented a plan for Nero to humiliate and discredit Octavia with a trumped-up charge that she'd slept with an Egyptian musician. Her maids were systematically tortured to provide the evidence, but Octavia inspired such loyalty that they refused to crack. Even in her death throes, one of them used her last ounce of strength to spit into Tigellinus's face the words, my mistress's vagina's cleaner than your mouth. But their plan to humiliate Octavia backfired. They'd not only underestimated the loyalty of her servants, but they'd also reckoned without the affection of the Roman mob who adored their old empress. They came out on the streets in force, hurling Poppaea's statues to the ground, reinstating Octavia's, and covering them in flowers. The people didn't like a descendant of the noble Augustus being treated like dirt. 
Nero knew he'd have to come up with a pretty convincing plan to discredit Octavia if he was going to have any chance of survival. So he invited Agrippina's assassin, Anicetus, to the palace, and he offered him a stark choice. He could either go to the Senate and say he'd slept with Octavia, or he could be executed. He went to the palace, and he gave a very convincing performance. He said that Octavia not only wanted his body, but she also wanted to get the navy on side so she could effect a political coup. Everything was going to plan, and Nero waved goodbye to Anicetus as he set sail for rich exile in Sardinia. Octavia was taken off to a prison island near Naples, where she was murdered quietly after her arrival. Her severed head was sent to Poppaea as a trophy. Somehow Nero weathered the storm that followed. The mob were pacified with more free gifts and entertainment, and Nero was left to enjoy life with Poppaea here on the Palatine. He wrote poems, studied singing and acting, and hosted soirees with poets and artists. He might have been remembered as a noble patron of the arts, if it weren't for the greatest catastrophe of his reign. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're rejoining Tony, who is now in the middle of Rome's famous Circus Maximus. This is the Circus Maximus. 2,000 years ago, this place would have been as full of people and as exciting as the Cheltenham Gold Cup. Up there was the palace with Nero's royal box, where he had a bird's eye view, not only of a day at the races, but of the first flames from the fire that swept through Rome. In the earliest historical account, Tacitus writes that the great fire of Rome probably started as a simple accident, 
A brazier got kicked over just outside the stadium, but a strong wind was blowing, and in moments, the flames took hold. It was a devastating blaze. It tore through the tightly packed wooden slums, spreading quickly to the posh houses on the Palatine and onto Nero's palace itself. Rome had a form of fire brigade, they couldn't cope with the inferno. It was the worst fire in history until Hamburg and Dresden in the Second World War, and it literally burnt itself into people's memories. As time went on, people started telling stories about Nero himself seen on the palace balcony with a liar, manically reciting his own epic poem, The Fall of Troy, as the flames lapped the Palatine. And it's these stories, recorded by later propagandists, that sealed Nero's reputation. But Tacitus tells us he wasn't even in Rome. Nero was actually miles away, here at his holiday villa in Anzio when it happened. Immediately he heard the news, he jumped on his horse, rode back to Rome and took charge of the firefighting and organising shelter and food for the homeless. Day and night he could be seen rushing around the city completely without any of his bodyguards who he'd told to go and help fight the fire. Until eventually, after nine long days and nights, the flames gradually abated. And it didn't stop there. When the fire was eventually put out, Rome was devastated and there were thousands of homeless refugees. Nero acted swiftly to solve the problems caused by the fire. He slashed the price of grain and let people camp in the temples of the Forum while their homes were rebuilt. He also commissioned innovative plans to design a safer city. So why do we remember him as the villain of the piece? The answer is the simplest in history. All these good plans needed funding. Nero imposed a fire tax. It made him far more unpopular than killing his mother. Nero had done his best to squash rumours about his part in the fire of Rome. With two architects, he'd redesigned the city for the public good. And people might have thanked him for it if a key part of the scheme hadn't included him fencing off a great slice of the devastated city for his own pet project. The Golden House was a fantastical design. Villas and palaces, gardens and parkland, a vast lake, and at its entrance, a golden statue of Nero as a god, 120 feet high. If you look at the plan of ancient Rome, the Golden House took up about a quarter of the city. Most of it's destroyed, but one section of this amazing architectural feat remains because it was used for the foundations of the public baths that were built after Nero's death. Rome had never seen anything like it. All the walls and ceilings were covered with great art. 14 centuries after Nero, Renaissance artists were still being lowered down through the roof to study the paintings. Walking where he walked, I begin to get a real sense of Nero's mind. He was obviously refined, but detached from political reality. He wanted popularity, but he couldn't see how something so beautiful would wind people up. 
Nero poured public money into building the Golden House, and that alienated him from the mob, who before that had always supported him. Nero could have survived that unpopularity if he hadn't terminally offended the aristocracy as well. The ideal Roman emperor was a great military leader like Julius Caesar, someone who'd expanded the empire like Augustus. But Nero didn't like war. He didn't even like watching gladiators. He wanted to be a different sort of leader, one who promoted poetry, theater, and peaceful games like the Greeks had. To the Roman elite, this created a huge division between them and Nero. To them, it was all effeminate foreign nonsense, and what's more, highly inappropriate behavior for an emperor. Worse still, Nero didn't just promote these cultural pursuits, he actually took part. Nero was putting himself at the forefront of an artistic crusade. Rome might have conquered Greece, but the emperor was now giving prominence to Greek ideas and culture. But for Nero, treading the boards wasn't just a cultural campaign, it was a way of boosting his self-esteem. He'd always acted, sung, played the lyre, and recited poetry to invited audiences. The applause gave him the illusion of instant affection and adulation. And so in 65 AD, when he was rapidly losing political popularity, naturally, he went on tour. Nero decided to go public and stepped into the limelight of a professional performing career. His first performance was in Naples, then a Greek-speaking city, and the crowd went wild. Mind you, his thin, reedy voice was helped by the amphitheatre's acoustics. If you speak from here, you sound pretty ordinary. But if you stand here, your voice sounds like a god. The Greek population of Naples loved it. They cheered, they clapped, they encored. But like a rock star, it went to his head. The adulation he'd always craved was finally in his grasp, and now nothing would stand in the way of his ambitions. On a wave of popular acclaim, he set out on a wild, crazy, artistic conquest of Greece itself. You couldn't say it was a modest affair. 2,000 carts of men and equipment, including 5,000 paid applauders to ensure he received a rapturous reception at every gig. The four major Greek festivals went in yearly rotation, but to fit into Nero's schedule, he got them all to take place during his visit, and he entered every one. In front of the judges stood the ruler of the known world, this was a man who'd made them change customs established over centuries and reschedule whole competitions. But he sweated, he wiped his brow with his arm. He was so nervous that on one occasion, he actually dropped his scepter while he was performing a dramatic play and really thought that the judges would mark him down for it. Of course, they didn't. And when they solemnly awarded him the victor's laurels, he was pleased, flattered, emotional. There were 1,800 competitions that year and Nero got first prize in 1800 of them. In Greece, Nero was genuinely popular, not least because he declared the country free from taxation. But back in Rome, they were horrified at Nero's antics. To make matters worse, he awarded himself a triumph, the traditional celebration of a returning military hero. Instead of the emblems of successful battles and captured prisoners, he paraded with his laurels and his medals. To members of the Senate, 
It was demeaning to the name of Rome. It wasn't what a Roman emperor should be doing. Nero's grip on reality was loosening, and his time was running out. He was 30. He'd been away from Rome for over a year. Leaderless, the neglected empire was falling apart. He'd never bothered to visit the military outposts, and this lack of interest was coming back to haunt him. But as rebellions broke out and his army began to defect, Nero seemed paralysed. He simply sat at home, unable to act. Then, in June 68 AD, the emperor woke up one night to find the palace deserted. This wasn't a good sign. His Praetorian guards had gone to a secret meeting of the Senate. The very Senate he'd given power to was now turning its back on him. Cold, hard reality finally sunk in. Nero was on his own. Still in his night clothes, he fled the palace looking for somewhere to hide. The sensible thing would have been to head for the port of Ostia, where he could have gone overseas to rally his loyal forces abroad, but he wasn't thinking straight. He bumped into three slaves who got horses and took him to a villa on the outskirts of the city. Eventually, a messenger arrived with the news that Nero had been declared an enemy of the state and had been sentenced to death in the ancient manner. Nero had no idea what that meant and asked one of the slaves who told him he'd be stripped naked and paraded through the streets of Rome with his head clamped in a forked branch. Then he'd be stoned to death. The slave politely added that suicide might be the better option. As dawn broke, he watched as they dug his grave. Then some Roman soldiers approached and with the help of a slave, he stabbed himself through the throat. His last words were, what an artist dies with me. He was 30 years and six months old, the last of the Julio-Claudian line that stretched back to Augustus. Nero marked the end of a dynasty and the end of an era. The first emperors, Julius Caesar and Augustus, had persuaded the Roman people that one-person rule was a good thing. Over the course of a century, there'd been six emperors, but the dynasty had degenerated into corruption and self-indulgent tyranny. Rome stuck with the idea of an emperor, but after Caligula and Nero, it was clear that just being related to Caesar and Augustus wasn't enough. After a year of chaotic civil war, the next emperor, Vespasian, wasn't related to anyone special, but he was what the empire needed, a common sense leader. Nero saw himself as an artist. His enemies thought of him as a tyrant and a buffoon. The truth is, he was all three. He certainly wasn't very good at running an empire, but then what did Rome expect? If you put a messed up 16-year-old in charge of half the known world, you're asking for trouble. Rome learned the hard way. From now on, it abandoned the Julio-Claudian line of emperors in favor of skilled administrators. But Nero did leave his mark on history. Whatever else he wasn't, he was a showman. He did everything in a big way, from building his house to killing his mother. He thought of himself as an actor, but no part he ever played on the stage could match the drama, the spectacle, and the sheer theatricality of his own life.
Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. Make sure you join us next week for another deep dive into our World History Archive. If that's too long for you to wait, though, you can always head over to our YouTube channel, where we've got hours and hours of world history documentaries for you to sift through. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, and if you can, give us a five-star rating and write a short review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.